Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All weekend long, Greg Bluestein has been trying to answer a question that seems simple enough. Does his senator have COVID? And we're waiting any minute now for for results of a yet another PCR test to show whether or not she she has the disease definitively or not. Greg reports for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The senator in question here is Kelly Leffler. Over the last 48 hours, news has dribbled out about Leffler's tests. First, she tested positive. Then she got an inconclusive test. Then she tested negative, but she was in isolation anyway. As Greg reported this story out, he wasn't just wondering about Senator Leffler, because she had been hitting the campaign trail with her Senate colleague David Perdue. Both of them are facing down a January runoff, and they're hoping to go back to Washington. All the Republican candidates that have not great time now might have to self-isolate for two weeks, even if they don't end up testing positive for the disease. And they were all just photographed and, and campaigned maskless with Vice President Pence. So this, this could seep into the upper echelons of Washington as well. Disappearance with Mike Pence? It was the same day Leffler got that positive test. Well, it makes it impossible for her not to be talking about the coronavirus pandemic between now and the end of the race. Has she been trying to ignore it? Not exactly, but Democrats have been accusing both Senator Leffler and Senator David Perdue of downplaying this pandemic, of not only downplaying it, but in their cases of profiting off of it, of, of making a series of stock transactions as the pandemic got worse that helped their bottom line. And this just feeds into that argument, I think. And it's not like this race is lacking drama right now. No, it's been super wild. And all these all these different campaign operatives and strategists from both parties are all texting all the time about, like, what else can happen in this race? What's next? Today on the show, as Georgia becomes the center of the political universe, Kelly Leffler's conflicting coronavirus tests are just one more layer of spectacle. Greg says the real drama is going to have to do with the voters. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Okay, I feel like one of the first things we have to do is explain why Georgia is still having elections. Can you just explain quickly why Georgia is having not one but two runoffs this year? Yeah, we have a decades-old law in Georgia that says you have to have a majority of the vote in order to win th these offices. 
Um, so over 50%. Over 50%, which makes it harder when you have multiple candidates. And in, in the case of one of the Senate races, Purdue versus Ossoff, there was a libertarian candidate. And then the other Senate race was a special election with 20 candidates on the ballot. That's why we kind of went in there knowing that there was really no way any one candidate in that crazy 20-candidate race would get above the majority vote marker. So we were always figuring that that one would be a runoff. And we should say, the place we are now, we have two Republican incumbents, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, and they're in runoffs. In Kelly Leffler's case with Raphael Warnock, he is the pastor at Martin Luther King's former church in Atlanta. And then with David Perdue, he's running against John Ossoff, who's a guy who's been a bit of a perennial candidate in Georgia, a young guy. I think he's 33. Is that yeah, right? He's 33, and he really made his name three years ago when um, he emerged out of kind of nowhere. I mean, no, I mean, no one in even Democratic circles had really heard of John Ossoff. He ran for this, the Republican-held congressional seat that was vacated by Tom Price when, when President Trump picked Tom Price to be his health secretary. And I broke the story that he got in the race, and I, I had never heard of him. I remember he called, and I'm sitting in my car, and he goes, yeah, you know, I'm getting in this race, and I'm a former congressional aide to Hank Johnson, and, and I've got support from both Hank Johnson and John Lewis. I said, okay, that's, that's saying something. And he goes, and I've raised $250,000 off the bat. I said, okay, uh, you're for real. <laughs> um, well, it turned out by the end of that campaign, he had raised $30 million, and the whole race cost $60 million, which, which at the time was a was a— I know, shattered all sorts of U.S. House records for money, money raised. John Ossoff ended up losing the 2017 special election for that congressional seat. But the race was closer than Republicans would have liked in an affluent, historically conservative district. And one year later, in a subsequent election, another Democrat came along, and she won this congressional seat. So this district was telling a larger story about Georgia's gradual slide towards the Democrats. Yeah, yeah. Georgia's kind of turn to, to a swing state was not some overnight development. You've seen it in the margins here in Georgia over the last decade. If you look at 2012, Mitt Romney wins the state by eight points. 2014, Governor Kemp and David Perdue win the state by, by eight points. 2016, Trump wins it by five points. 2018, Brian Kemp wins it by one and a half points. So, so the margins kind of show how close the state's getting, but that also ignores some of the other trends, which are the electorates getting younger and more diverse. The, the African American voting proportion is ticking upwards as the white share of the electorate is going down to sort of new depths. And of course, Stacey Abrams, not only has she energized a lot of a lot of Democrats who usually skip these types of votes, but also she showed a pathway to run not as a Republican light, not as a moderate, but as a candidate who embraces a democratic values, right? Right, the progressive values. She showed that you don't have to run as an NRA Democrat like like Democrats had been for years. You don't have to kind of skirt um, national figures like Democrats have been doing for years in order to have success in Georgia. I read that one of the reasons Georgia has these runoff rules, it has to do with race, that in a contest with a lot of different people on the ballot, it was clearly an opening for a black politician to win. And so these rules about having to get more than 50 percent of the vote were put in place to prevent that. Is that your understanding, too? Yep, you're exactly right. And by the way, put into place by Democrats back when Democrats ruled the state and the Democratic Party was very, very different than it is now. But yeah, it was meant to uh, 
you know, because some of these races, you'd have five, six, seven, you know, more than a dozen candidates. And it was meant uh, to make it so that uh, uh, favoring white candidates over African-American candidates in these split fields. And, and it worked. And what we've seen, too, in statewide runoffs is that Republicans now have won every statewide runoff in Georgia history. Every statewide runoff? Why? Well, the runoff electorate tends to be older and less diverse, which, which tends to favor Republicans in Georgia. Also, it's been a real challenge for Democrats to invigorate their African-American base for these runoff votes. When you have to go vote again in a month, or in this case, now it's nine weeks in Georgia uh, later, it's been hard for, for Democrats to keep their base in line where it's been a lot easier for Republicans um, to get out that vote. So Democrats have their fingers crossed here, but it, for them, this would be something new to win in these runoffs. Yeah, hell, it'd be new for them to win statewide at all, right? Um, that's why Democrats, of course, they're celebrating Biden's narrow victory in Georgia, but it means even more with that context, right? With knowing that they have gone on this drought for so long, now they feel like they have at least a formula, a pathway, something they can go tell voters, we can do this. I want to talk a little bit about how each of the candidates did in the general election, just to sort of foreshadow what their challenges might be moving forward and, you know, what those results mean. So if we just take the Kelly Leffler, Raphael Warnock race first, Raphael Warnock is a black man. And it's it's funny to me that exactly what this runoff rule was put in place to stave off, which is Raphael Warnock walking away with it because there are so many people on the ballot. If there wasn't this runoff rule, that's what he would have done. He won by a healthy margin, like 400,000 votes, right? Yeah, he got about a third of the overall electorate, a third of the overall vote. He was the clear establishment pick. He was the ba- he had the backing of not only Stacey Abrams, but national Senate Democrats. And his opponents, his Democratic opponents, had really no organization. They didn't have any money behind them. And the Republicans were so busy attacking each other because they knew he wouldn't get to over 50. They knew there was really no shot of him getting to that majority. So they said, well, hold our fire for the runoff. And they just destroyed each other. They just pummeled each other. So if you look at like Kelly Leffler's attack ads or Doug, Doug Collins's attack ads, very, very few, if any of them, even mentioned Raphael Warnock. They knew this would end up at a runoff no matter what, no matter what they did. Well, so and then you look at the John Ossoff-Purdue race, it was much tighter and Purdue did come out ahead. It just, it's just that he didn't get past 50%. And there it seems like there really was a spoiler candidate, this libertarian candidate who peeled off enough of the votes that it's now in this, in this runoff position. You're exactly right. And the libertarian candidate is the source of much frustration for Republicans, not just because he was a spoiler, but also he's a former Republican candidate for Congress. So they kind of see him as as someone who wasn't even a true libertarian. And John Ossoff, one of the interesting things about his his results was he ended up underperforming Joe Biden by about 100,000 votes. So clearly hmm. shows that he still has a lot of work to do. President Trump and David Perdue were about even. I mean, David Perdue actually um, got about a few hundred votes more than Donald Trump, making him the highest vote-getter of a Republican in Georgia history and just shy of of Joe Biden in setting a record. So there's some different factors in play here. Yeah, when I think about the difference between the results for Raphael Warnock 
and Ossoff. I, I just wonder what it says to you about the work they have to do now looking ahead towards the runoff. These runoffs are just all about the base. And I know I'm not saying, I'm not breaking your news here, but they're not spending any time trying to persuade undecided voters or very little time. It's not worth their 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 energy or resources or, or money at this point. All they want to do is get the same base that turned out in November. If they can get, I'd say, 90% of that base back, it would be an easy victory for them. And that's a lot easier said than done at this point. And so they're playing to their base, but they have very different strategies doing so because you're right. Ossoff came about, he came tens of thousands of votes shy of David Perdue. I think it was 85,000 votes. So the first thing he's done since that November election was he planned a seven or eight city, four day tour of Georgia. Cause he's got to get those, he's got to consolidate. He's got to, he's got to re-energize voters and he's got to get those voters who might've skipped him on the ballot or who might not be that, you know, enthused by him. He's got to get them motivated. So he was the most aggressive of any of these four candidates out the gate. Reverend Warnock has a whole different, they're running as a package deal, but he's got a different strategy. And, and that that's because he went largely unscathed during the first round of this vote. And now he's getting pummeled. So he's got to go out there and defend himself against attacks from Republicans that are who are resurfacing past sermons he's, he delivered, past stances, a 2002 arrest back when he was a pastor in Baltimore. All these issues that really didn't come up at all the past year are now coming up in a major way. And so he's kind of on the defensive and he's trying to tell folks, ignore all these, ignore these attack ads, stick with me. I'm the sort of cool, measured pastor who can bring moral conscience to to the U.S. Senate. So they've got very, very different opening strategies. That's interesting. Um, Because I was going to ask you, when all you are doing is rallying the base, does that make the contest uglier in some way? And it sounds like what you're saying is that, at least for Warnock, that is true. Yeah. um, Well, on the Republican side of the ledger, you're hearing Republicans not just emphasize the same messages they they emphasized all through before November, but just amping them up. I mean, they're they're saying that Raphael Warnock is a radical's radical, that under a Democratic Senate, it would be a road to socialism, that they're comparing uh, uh, Reverend Warnock to a Marxist because he worked at a church in New York back in 95 that that featured Fidel Castro, the Cuban dictator, as a speaker. So they're doing everything. And like, this was all known. I mean, the, the, you know, the, this wasn't a surprise to any of Warnock supporters either. It just, it took this long for the Republicans to start using this against him. Warnock was anticipating these attacks. There's a funny ad that illustrates all this. It ran right after the November 3rd election. Raphael Warnock even hates puppies. Get ready, Georgia. The negative ads are coming. Greg says the bottled-up attacks from Republicans against Warnock, they'll be a real challenge. Some of the things, you know, out of taking out of context, some of the clips he has in past sermons, they echo the exact message that Republicans have used to win in Georgia for decades, and that is Democrats are, are, are too radical for Georgia. And so he's got to kind of add that context you know, because he has answers for 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 the ads that we've seen so far. And, and, and the hard part for him is that all this could have come out in April or August or whenever, and they'd have had months to to rebut it and to, you know, have their own sort of defenses to it. But it's all coming out now with just six or seven weeks left. Um, so it gives him a shorter time frame to answer all these these issues. More from my conversation with Greg Bluestein after a short break. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello listeners, I'm Gabrielle Sierra host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. There's been this debate, I think, with both parties, like how much to nationalize the race, how much to make it about Trump, how much to make it about what's happening in Washington. And you've seen in the aftermath of the general election, some down-ballot Democrats especially saying they suffered they thought, for being tethered to the National Party and and the debates about what the National Party stood for. But it seems to me that the hard thing about Georgia right now is there's no way not to nationalize this race. If the Democrats win these seats, they can govern. And if they don't, they can't. So I'm wondering how you're seeing the candidates thread that needle. On the Republican side, and this was happening even before November, the Republicans were not distancing themselves one iota away from President Trump. That that goes for David Perdue as well as Kelly Leffler. So they feel like nationalizing the race works for them. Yes, yes, because it's a total base election. Campaigns figured it was more efficient and more authentic, maybe, um, to just go after the base than to try to try to convince the one or two percent of undecided voters who showed up in every survey. But the Democratic side has been interesting because you're exactly right. In years past, Democrats in Georgia ran away from the National Party. Not so at all. Not so at all this past cycle. Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff couldn't have been more excited to go share the same stage as Kamala Harris when she came to campaign in Georgia a week or so before the election. They were there with Joe Biden when he visited the state a week before the election. They both shared the stage with former President Obama the day before the election. I certainly expect Obama to come back. I certainly expect Vice President-elect Kamala Harris to come back. I certainly expect other national figures to come. And the Republicans are coming. <laughs> the Republicans. Yeah, 20- Pence just came down. Yeah, Pence was just here on uh, this past Friday. Tom Cotton was here. Marco Rubio was here. Rick Scott was here. I fully expect Tim Scott to come, Nikki Haley to come. This is the 2024 proving ground for Republican candidates. So they're all coming down, basically delivering more or less the same somewhat awkward message. Because remember, none of them have conceded President Trump's defeat. So that means they can't explicitly acknowledge that Senate control is on the line. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, Leffler and Purdue. They both seem to be making this argument that they are the D.C. firewall. Like if you elect these two Republicans, we're going to be able to raise our hands and prevent Joe Biden from doing anything too crazy. But to make that argument, you have to accept that Joe Biden 
is the president-elect, which neither of them are doing. Yeah, it's very, it's a weird line they're trying to navigate, right? Vice President Pence, when he was down here the other day, he said, you know, just in case was basically his paraphrase of like, we need these seats just in case things don't go the way we want to doing recounts. So that's how, that's how they're trying to phrase it right now. So a belt and suspenders approach. Yes, exactly. I think it's worth taking some time for the two of us to just talk about the GOP in general in Georgia, because you've talked about it as this proving ground for folks right now. Like money is pouring in from all kinds of GOP folks who are like, you know, we need to you know, maintain the firewall and they see this state as very important. But the Republican Party in Georgia is taking so much fire nationally You've written about what's happening with the GOP in Georgia as a kind of civil war. And I wonder if it's worth exploring what's happening there to understand what's happening maybe more widely in the GOP, in Washington, nationally. Can you talk a little bit about how the GOP sees itself? I mean, because we see you have the Republican secretary of state and the governor certifying the election and then just getting tons of criticism for it. Yeah, from President Trump and his allies who have, and President Trump has been scathing on Twitter, attacking both Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, and Governor Kemp. And by the way, both Republicans who he endorsed in 2018. And, and there's been almost near daily protests at the Georgia Capitol from Trump supporters who are, who are claiming that Joe Biden stole the election. I know there's a lot of talk nationally about Republicans who won't who are not acknowledging Biden's victory and the damage that's doing long-term on the party. But here in Georgia, it's a short-term game. And this is a fear of the, I keep on hearing over and over again from state Republicans who, who some of them are saying it publicly, some are saying it just privately. But the longer that core loyal Trump supporters in Georgia hear that the vote was rigged, that the outcome is preordained, that the system is, is corrupt, the less likely it is they're going to come out, back out and vote on January 5th for runoffs that will, you know, decide Joe Biden's administration. They could shape his administration. Well, and you saw your secretary of state make that argument really explicitly. He he looked at the numbers. He said tens of thousands of people voted in the primary and then didn't turn up Republican voters for the general. And we think it's because they've been scared off by all of the miscommunication about mail-in ballots. Exactly. All this doubt that was sowed in for for years, right? I mean, it's been years where President Trump has, has criticized mail-in ballots. I mean, even after his 2016 victory, he was talking about millions of fraudulent mail-in ballots, right? So that's taking a toll. And of course, we'll never know how much of a toll that's taken. But even Secretary Raffensperger said, look, there was 20,000 plus voters who voted in, in the June primary and, and Republicans and didn't vote in November. And that could be part and parcel. That, that would have been the margin. I mean, Joe Biden won the state by about 12,000 votes. Of course, it's impossible to draw a direct line, uh, but he tried to. And he said he's the author of his own, he orchestrated his own defeat in Georgia by casting so much doubt. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's, there's some scattered evidence of that around the country. And that's another fear for Republicans going to January 5th because Democrats have this built-in advantage right now of mail-in ballots. Democrats have so aggressively pushed mail-in balloting, especially during the pandemic, on their supporters, and they're very good at it. And Republicans now have to not only, if they want to build a machine like that, they have to get over the... Um, infrastructure advantages the Democrats have, but also they've got to get over the trust advantages because President Trump and other leaders have spent so long casting doubt on that system. 
Listening to you talk, it sounds like you're framing what's about to happen on January 5th as a kind of experiment, both for the Democrats and the Republicans, where with the Republicans, the experiment is how much mistrust can we sow in the system but still get people to use it? (laughs) And with the Democrats, how good can we get this turnout machine to work? You're, you're exactly right. Republicans still believe this state is fundamentally conservative. It's fundamentally Republican. And they believe that it was basically just President Trump that is the reason why um, Joe Biden carried the state so narrowly. It was backlash, especially in the suburbs, against President Trump. Democrats are trying to re-harness, re, re, recapture the magic that helped them narrowly win the state. But now they'll have to do it without President Trump on the ballot. Right, they'll have to they'll have to convince their loyal supporters that to come out when when they, when they're not coming out to vote against Trump. Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it was great to join you. Thanks for having me. Greg Bluestein is a reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution, and that's the show. What next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson, with an assist from Franny Kelly. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can get at me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Or you can come back for more What Next tomorrow.